The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. So Jesus was to come in our backyard and he was to sit on a chair and he looked at us. I think there would be some messages that Jesus had for us. You know, that very first one that, that we talked about is uh, how we as Christians have become comfortable with just mistruth. I mean, we're not straight out lying, but we're not telling the truth. And we kind of feel like there's this comfort to kind of shoot down the middle, but truth is truth, and either we're truthful people or we're not truthful people. And then last week, we talked about the dynamic of just what does it mean to follow? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And, and Jesus uh, was incredible uh, as he walked on the earth uh, uh, gathering people. And the problem isn't gathering people. The, the, the problem really comes into how do we actually follow? What does it mean to follow? And, and a lot of times what we've done is we follow on our own terms. We go, I, I'm in Jesus, but I'm going to be in in this way and in this fashion, but I'm not really going to be in. And so... You know, our, our challenge for us as, as Renfrew Baptist Church is to wrestle through how do we become in so that we're actually ready for God to do something? Because if we're not in, then we just look like everywhere else. We might as well just put Renfrew Community Association on our building and go, well, we just gather, we like people, we want to include people, and we'll talk about Jesus, but we're not really going to show people that there's a way to, to follow Jesus. And if I can speak as a parent for a second, uh, what teenagers are longing for, what young adults are longing for, is people that are my age and above actually modeling what it means to follow Jesus. And so part of the irrelevancy of the church is we've just watered down following to something where a student goes, really, I'm going to give my life to, the, to God through the church? I, there's thousands of other opportunities out there. So... We see this increase in the world of students wanting to be involved in social action, social justice, but it's not usually connected to the church. And so we have to recalibrate that. We have to start going, no, we want young adults not to, to look at the church as something that is irrelevant, but something that they go, man, that's where my contribution needs to be made. And so that's all with followership. And today, we're going to take another turn, and we're going to talk about what does it actually mean to, to be a Christ follower when hope appears to fade? Uh, most of us have a level of hope. Uh, some of you might be hoping this morning, man, I sure hope Matt gets done at 11.45 because I have a roast that I need to get there. Some of you had a hope of, man, I sure hope there were no drums in church today. Some of you had a hope of, man, I sure hope that my parking spot is available this morning. We have hope. Could you imagine waking up every morning and having no hope? It would be a terrible life. Some of us have lots of hope. Some of us have a little bit of hope. And so we've got to keep wrestling with what does it actually mean to be a person of hope to a world that's hopeless? And, and how do we actually carry that message on beyond the walls of Renfrew Baptist Church actually to be hope givers to the world that, that looks at us and goes, just show me some hope. So that's where we're headed today. Let's pray 
and then we're going to dig into what God has to say to us. God, in the next few minutes, I want you to be the one who speaks. Make it not about what my words are. My words are feeble. We want to hear your words. We love the opportunity that we have to dig into truths that reflect who you are. Lord, not only does it tell us about you, but it also illuminates how far our lives are from what you call us to. Allow that not to be guilt-laden. Allow it to be something that spurs us on to do more for who you desire the world to know about you. We love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Uh, Look at Psalm chapter 3. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 3. You know, if we don't have hope as Christ followers, we're just like everyone else. We're like our next door neighbor that's hopeless. So one of the, the gifts that God gives us is how do we actually have hope? It's something that we can easily grab a hold of. If you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 3, it'll be on the screen behind me. Psalm chapter 3, David, the, the guy who is brutally honest in Scripture. David was someone who declared truths that most of us would be a little bit scared to, to declare. He cried out to God. So here's him in Psalm chapter 3 saying this. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord is the one who sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands buffet me or assail me on every side. You know, maybe it started in Y2K. Some of us were born after Y2K. For us that lived during that, there was all kinds of fear that entered in. Some of you, and we won't ask you to, to, to raise your hands this morning, but there was talk of nationwide blackouts, financial freezes. We all looked at our computer thinking the clock couldn't turn over. There was no food shortages. But some of us back then were losing hope in some of the things that we were familiar with, and we started to do this. Let's actually take money out of the bank and keep it in our houses. Let's actually have some canned goods just in case. Let's actually have firewood so that we could heat our house if it didn't work out. Some of us there was a time of, of fear that happened. You know, the only thing that really happened in, in Y2K was that it was great to be in the generator and bottled water business. That's the reality. Nothing happened. It was kind of anticlimactic at that time. We became very suspicious of our technology. We lost hope. You know, for sometimes, some of us lose hope when we look at the government whether we're from the U.S. Or, or from Canada, we can look at the government and we can say, well, there's just no hope. For some of us, we lost hope on 9-11 when we saw on television, and I can remember exactly where I was, sitting in Denny's on McKnight and suddenly watching the TV and going, man, our world's just not safe anymore. Who would have thought that the word anthrax would become a common word when we play Scrabble? You know, terrorism was something that we just thought, man, that's so far away, that's in another country, you just don't go to that country. And suddenly now, 
Our airports, when we go in, the security reflects that fear of what 9-11 was. Maybe for you, it's, it's not those world things, but maybe for you, it's simply the doctor writes the diagnosis of cancer on your file. Or maybe the divorce document appears on your kitchen table, or that family business that you've held dear to finally locks its door and closes for the last time. Maybe the company that you worked for went from a medium-sized company to a small company. Maybe you're just dreading opening your email or your mail because there's more bills that you are getting than the money that you have to, to pay for them. Maybe you're like a 15-year-old who writes a letter telling his family he just can't go on any further. There's an interesting quote that says this, that, that's proclaimed, all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. If you've never had any down times or dark times, gloomy times in your life, you'll be dried up. There'll be no depth to yourself. See, that's the problem with us as Christians. We, at times, think things are just going to be perfect. Things just go the way that they should go, rather than seeing the struggles that come into our life. Good and bad times make a mature person. You see, life is a, a mixture of pain and pleasure, of victory and defeat, of success and failure, of mountaintops and valleys. Do you remember what... Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. We usually hear 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, but let me read it for you. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. In a world that's so apparently defined by tragedy and loss and failure, do those words that Paul wrote, faith, hope, and love, ring true, realistic, or even possible? Or do they just sound like Christian gook? Just nicety, like we say it, like faith, hope, and love. But there's really nothing to believe in, nothing to look forward to, nothing that can be done. It's, it might be that you and I have become so self-focused that We've forgotten that God says that he actually shows up in the valleys of life. And that people who have been in the valleys actually have, have lived and survived and come to, came out stronger. So let's look together at hope, how hope can reappear in the midst of hardships. I want you to go to an Old Testament book, so don't hesitate to use your table of contents. I want you to go to Lamentations, okay? So go to Lamentations. It doesn't make you more spiritual if you can find it without looking at the table of contents. You can look at the table of contents. We're going to read a chunk of verses from Lamentations. I love what it proclaims about hope and being in the valley. Lamentations 3, verse 13 says this. And there's great imagery here. So don't get lost in just the words. Try to see the images that the author's painting for us. Lamentations 3, verse 13. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. 
He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say this, my splendor is gone and all that I hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them. My soul is downcast within me. That's tough. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. There's that word. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Through all of this, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll wait on him. I'll wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Instead of that word salvation, just put the word rescue in there. I will wait quietly for the rescue of the Lord. So let's talk about hardships just for a second, okay? So the very first one, and these will be on the screen behind you. We have to understand that hardships are inevitable. That hardships are inevitable. They're going to happen to you, so you might as well count on them. Most of us in this room have either come out of a valley or we're right in one right now. Or guess what? We're probably headed toward one. Valleys happen throughout our life, one right after another. For some of us, we have had a mountaintop experience this summer. Guess what? There's going to be a valley. Jesus was really realistic about this in John 16. He said this, In this world that you're a part of, you will have trouble. It's not a matter of if, it's when. It's going to happen. We're going to have difficulty. We're going to have disappointment. We're going to have discouragement. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be fatigue. There's going to be failure. Let's commit to not being surprised by them and instantly blaming God when a hardship comes. The second thing, hardships are unfortunately unpredictable. For some of us, we're planners. We would love to schedule in our hardships. We can't plan them. We can't time them. We can't schedule them. They're always unexpected. Guess what? They also come at the worst time. I wish they could come at a time when, when I was prepared. Have you ever had a flat tire at the perfect time? They just happen. And they always happen when we're late. You know, it'd be great if we could schedule our downtimes in our life just like we schedule everything else. Valleys come suddenly. They're unpredictable. Have you noticed how easily a good day can turn into a bad day? Whether it's a phone call, a letter, a doctor's checkup, a freak accident, a conversation that happened, valleys just happen. Jeremiah 4.20 says this. I love this little verse. Disaster follows disaster. It's brutal. In an instant, my tents were destroyed. My shelter falls in a moment. For some of you that have set up a tent before, you know what that feels like. 
I think I got it, I think I got it, and it's back down, or the wind takes it, or it's pouring rain. Here's the third thing. Hardships are impartial. Sometimes we do this with hardships. We sit here and sulk and we go, it's just me. Like, why is it always happening to me? Guess what? Hardships happen to everybody. No one is insulated from pain. No one gets to skate through life problem-free. We have problems, we have difficulties, we have downtimes. Some of us struggle with depression. All of that is simply to say that it means that we're a person if we have hardship. It doesn't mean we're an evil human being. It means you're a human being. The Bible is very clear that good things happen to bad people, and sometimes bad things happen to very good people. They don't care how good or how bad you are. Hardships are impartial. The, the fourth thing is hardships are temporary. There's always an end to a hardship. They don't last. They're not a permanent location. David said, even though I walk and continue to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley is not something you stay in your entire life. It's, not so, it's something you go through. It's a circumstance. It's a season. Whether you're in a valley, many of us, myself included, often think it's a dead end. It's not. They don't come into our life to stay. They come to pass. 1 Peter 1.6 says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Though now for a little time. The author admits that sometimes you're going to go through tough times. It's going to be rough. Life is tough. You're going to have to. But it's only for a while, and guess what's on the other side? Joy. The interesting thing with the author in, in 1 Peter 1, said he's talking about heaven. There's no problems in heaven. There's no valleys. There's no dark days. While you and I may be harassed down here on earth, in heaven we have no problems. The, the, the fifth thing about hardships is, and this is where we start to turn the corner, Picture Jesus in the backyard. Jesus gave us a great history lesson. We're all like, okay, I get that with hardships. Now Jesus would say this to us. Hardships are actually purposeful. God has a reason for allowing you to go through the valley. There's financial valleys, relational valleys, emotional valleys. Those valleys actually help develop or prove our faith. Valleys are not a freak of nature. God wants to build your faith in the valley of life. You and I love to enjoy the mountain. It's like the, the mountaintop experience. It's like the disciples who were on the mountain who just went, man, let's build a tent. Let's just stay here. We like that. That's why when we were growing up, if we were a part of a youth group and we were on a missions trip or a camp or a retreat, many times we would go, oh, if we could just stay here. We like building a shelter. We, we like the comfort of that. But we actually build faith in the valleys of life when everything is going fine and great. Guess who we don't need a lot of times? God. But when we come face to face with a dark valley, it forces us to our knees. 
When we don't feel like serving and trusting God or praising God, that's where our faith is tested, not in the good times, but in the, the hard times. Every problem has a purpose, even the little tiny ones, the, the ones that seem irrelevant, the things that seem like they're just irritations, they have a purpose. God can teach you character. He wants to change you. He wants to mature you. Look at Lamentations 3. Hopefully you've left it open. Lamentations 3, go back there again. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. That's a great little tagline there. They actually created a song to mock me. I drank bitter herbs. He's broken my teeth with gravel. That's a great image. He's trampled my feet in the dust. I've been derived, deprived of, of any kind of peace. I have no clue what prosperity is. But still, I proclaim the Lord is my portion. I just need to wait on him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. It's so good to wait quietly for the rescue of the Lord. Man, it sure sounds like Jeremiah here in Lamentations 3 is going through a valley. But where's his hope? It appears that hope is found in, in chapter 3, verse 20. How can someone who so eloquently describes his struggle, who just lays it out, it's almost like the, the back of the dump truck, he's just dumped it all, going, my teeth... I have nothing to drink. I have no prosperity. It sounds like us sometimes, like, oh, it's so hot, and then it's too cold, and then it's too humid, and then it, the fan's not blowing in the right direction. How can a guy so eloquently describe his struggle, pen so, word, pen so many words that have such great confidence? The difference between unrecoverable despair an unintimidated confidence in the future is that magic word of hope. Before we talk about how he manages to find hope in this desperate situation, let's be absolutely sure what we know, that we know what hope is and what it's not. The very first thing, and this is the, this is the important stuff in the message this morning. Hope that's found in the Bible, the kind of hope that that God talks about is not optimism. Now, don't get me wrong, I love optimists. Optimists tend to live longer than pessimists. They accomplish more and just usually are a lot more fun to be around. A pessimist can hardly wait for the future so he can look back with regret. Optimists can hardly wait for the future because they know it's going to be better than today. Uh, there was a story of a student who was pedaling on a bicycle around his college campus. He was wearing a t-shirt that read this, studying to be a doctor was on the front of his shirt. On the back of his bicycle was a tag that read, studying to be a Mercedes. You see, optimists handle failure and frustration better than pessimists. For all their similarities, though, Hope and optimism are very different animals. Optimists think they can or that others will. Hope knows that God can and God will. 
Optimists look at a situation and go like this, I'll find the positive. They see the glass full, they see a flat tire and say, well, at least it's only half flat. Hope, on the other hand, doesn't take its cue from circumstances. In fact, hope looks at it and goes, God is in it. Romans chapter 5 says this, verses 3 through 5. Paul penned this, not only so, we rejoice in our suffering. We find joy in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces what? Hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. It doesn't fail us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Did you notice that little verse there that said hope doesn't disappoint? Why doesn't it disappoint? Because it's God and God doesn't disappoint. Which is exactly why Jeremiah was able to look back and find hope in his dismal circumstances in Lamentations 3. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I have hope because of the great love of God that I'm not consumed. I'm not, obliter- I'm not killed. Jeremiah's confidence in the future had nothing to do with optimism. If you were to rank the characters of the Bible in the order of their most positiveness and optimism, Jeremiah would have been dead last. He was by far the most pessimistic prophet to ever bend Israel's ear. In fact, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. So, for some of you that hang out with weeping people, there's no optimism there. But why was he able to survive? Because his hope was in God. When your hope is in what God can do, you aren't just wishing. Hope for the future, secondly, is based on the experience of the past. When your hope is in God, you're basing your confident expectation for the future on the faithfulness of God in the past. Which is why memories are so important in hope. As we reach into the past, we find assurances for the future, knowing that our future won't be destroyed by what the past is. That's how the Jews did it. No people had ever been through so much for so long at the hateful hands of so many. Yet, the Jews were incredibly hopeful. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 paints a great picture of of hope. Psalm 136, really this is a textbook example. This is how people back in biblical times actually remembered hope, that God was still faithful, that God would still respond. In this passage, the leader would actually say a statement and the people would respond. They would say, God's love, His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. The leader would say, and the people would all say in unison, His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. 
His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Now we're going to participate. So let me start again. I want you, at, after I say the statement, just to proclaim together, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to the one who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, to him who led us through the wilderness, to him who struck down the great kings and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to the servant Israel. God, who remembered us in our lowest state and freed us from our enemies, he gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. That's how they rekindled hope back then. For us, it can feel like, oh, how many more verses are there, Matt? But back then, the people, you'd have a guy, a leader going, this is what God did, and all the people would go, his love endures forever. That's how they overcame despair. That's how the wilderness actually became something they could live in. They remembered what God had done in the past. They were honest about the tragedy of the present. All of those verses weren't positive verses. They weren't verses where we're going, God did this. Some of those verses were hard verses. But they were hopeful about the promise of the future. Hope always grows out of memory. What was it that Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, communion? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Was that for him or for us? In the catacombs of ancient Rome, archaeologic... Well, I can't even say that word today. People who are way smarter than me have discovered a number of early Christian symbols. 
One of them is a fish, one of them is a shepherd. And there's one more common symbol in these caves, the anchor. Why do you suppose that there's an anchor as a common symbol? Maybe it's because what was found in Hebrews 6.19, where the author wrote, but we have this hope. It's an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. The catacombs were where Christians from uh, where Christians back then hid from Roman persecution and where they buried their dead. It's odd, isn't it, that a symbol of firm and secure hope would exist in a place of hiding, in a place of death. It's not really when you remember that their hope in the face of persecution and death rested on the memory of an empty tomb, a risen Savior, a coming King. As we leave today, as we wrestle with what does it mean to actually live in this world, are we a hope giver or are we people who are hopeless? I would challenge us to be people of hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. I pray if I said anything that wasn't of you, you'd take it from my friends' minds. If you used me in a small way to encourage my friends, make it about the Holy Spirit who prompts, guides, and leads. We love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.